Welcome to Immigration Uncovered, the DACAWISE video podcast, where we dive deep into the dynamic world of immigration law with the latest developments, practice management strategies, and the transformative impact of legal technology. I'm your host, James Pittman. With me today is Thomas Martin. Thomas is CEO of LawDroid. So Thomas, welcome to the program. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, James. I'm th thrilled to be here. So Thomas, um, can you share a little bit? Now, you're a, you, you were a practicing attorney. Do you, uh, Let us know, do you still practice? And ch tell us about your journey into the legal tech space and what inspired you to, to found LawDroid. Yeah, happy to do so. So um, I am still a practicing lawyer. I have a law firm that does exclusively probate law and I have a great team that pretty much helps me to manage it without a lot of uh, heavy lifting. So I get to pursue fun and exciting opportunities and, and challenges with uh, LawDroid. So how did, how did it come to be though? Like, give us a little bit of the backstory. I mean, what, you know, what area of practice did you start out in? Were you always into technology and, and how did it evolve? I'm really glad you asked that question because it's kind of an interesting coincidence. I actually started out uh, with immigration. Uh, when I got out of law school, you know, it was around the 2000s, the dot-com and lots of investment. And I actually started out with a website that was called immigrationfilings.com. I did not know that. Yeah, it was my first foray into legal tech, really. It was a website where there were you know, it was very basic at the time. It was just forms and the forms captured information that I would need to fill out, you know, the different uh, immigration forms. And it allowed for a client to have a web-based interactive experience. You know, that was my business that I launched at the time. It lasted a few months. It wasn't, you know, a big success. It was way ahead of its, <laughs> of, of its time. What year was this? This was, uh, this was 2000. Wow. Okay. So back. back. Yeah. So way, way back. You know, I've had experience in a lot of different practice areas, uh, employment, immigration, uh, class actions, personal injury, toxic tort, personal injury cases, a whole spectrum of different types of law. So it really gave me, you know, good experience about what different lawyers experience and uh, what their problem points are, you know, what they would like to, to streamline if they can. And I've just been into it, into tech my whole career and trying to use it to leverage it to make doing the job easier. So LawDroid is a, a chat bot. So how did it, how, how did you, you know, get the idea for the, the chat bot? Yeah. So the idea came a little over seven years ago now, I think almost eight where I saw a news story about Joshua Browder and he was using a chat bot to fight parking tickets in London at the time. I think he was 17 years old and that just caught me by surprise. I, I hadn't heard of that before and the ability to use chatbots to essentially automate legal information and advice, that was shocking to me at the time. LegalZoom had already done, you know, document automation, but to combine document automation with provision of legal information and advice, that seemed revolutionary to me. And so I immediately jumped into it you know, created my own experimental chatbot that helped Californians to incorporate in three easy steps. And that just kind of blew the whole opportunity wide open. There was a lot of interest. And uh, since then, I've just been working with a lot of different law firms, lawyers, legal aid organizations, and it's been a fantastic ride. 
so uh, you know if you're doing a corporation so we have 50 states so did you have to modify the the, the product for every one of the 50 states how no because at the time it was a it was a raw experiment you know it was my first step into chatbots it was solely focused on california which interestingly back then it was still a paper-based system you would think that with silicon valley california would be at the forefront but yeah i think it was just a a couple of years ago, they actually converted over from their paper-based applications to online. Well, let's dig in a little deeper. So, I mean, what were when you were practicing, I mean, what were some of the challenges that you faced that led you to this whole idea of, and, and see the need really for, you know, leveraging technology to automate? I mean, this, let's go back now, like to, you know, 2000, the late nineties and all of that, the internet revolution is happening. I mean, what, you know, what, what were you experiencing? Well, what I was experiencing at the time is what I think lawyers throughout the ages have experienced is that there's too much, you know, there's, there's too much information to get your head around. There's too many documents to, to draft. And, you know, admittedly, a lot of the documents that we draft and that I was drafting then fairly similar. I mean, the workflow, like probably most of the lawyers that you have here is that you start with a shell and that shell is something that is a template that has most of the information filled out and you put in your client information, you just swap it out. And that you also, like there's a unique arguments that you might make that have to do with the specific facts of your client. But basically you're just tweaking that. So the total amount of time that you put into it, it's been less and less over time. We're not, you know, in the 19th century where you had to draft this from scratch with a, you know, a blank page. So making that quicker and quicker was what I was trying to do. Well, let's dig in a little bit to the actual, you know, capability. So uh, as far as LawDroid and and its current, you know, incarnation, this the state of LawDroid, can you tell us about it? Like what capabilities does it possess? How does it help lawyers to automate their practices? And, you know, piggybacking on that, I mean, in your view, what are the most exciting potentials of legal bots in the industry? I mean, what what, do you, what is the state of the art of the capabilities of legal bot, uh, bots? And what do you think are some of the most promising features that are coming out? It's an exciting time. And we're just scratching the surface about what generative AI can do uh, to help lawyers practice. And not just the practice of law, but also the business of law, capturing that business. So within a year's time, it's going to, you know, my answer is going to be vastly different about everything that it could do as it has been over this past year. But so LawDroid has evolved now into a no code, easy to use, intuitive platform where lawyers can use two products. One product is LawDroid Copilot, and they can use it to do some basic legal research to help them draft letters and emails to summarize documents, deposition transcripts. It could be, you know, analyzing a motion from opposing counsel, extracting arguments, even creating counter arguments. There's a lot that you could do with it. And it's intentionally built as a bit of a Swiss army knife because there's a lot of different things that we do throughout the day. So that's LawDroid Copilot is your AI legal assistant. On the other hand, we have a, we have a platform which is called LawDroid Builder where you can build your own unique custom AI chatbots. And so Copilot is one example of the kind of thing that you could build using our platform. 
So it's customizable. So it has some set capabilities, and then then you have the option of creating a customizable bot. So you have both both pathways. That that's great. I mean, does it do intake? I mean, talking about you know sort of onboarding leads. Uh, how about that capability? Yeah, that's the one we started out with. Even pre-generative AI, you know, we had uh, natural language processing uh, that we'd custom built for it, where it interacts with leads on your website, captures their interest, and then gets their contact information. And now you have a new lead that you could follow up with. You know, it's a fantastic alternative to using uh, essentially call centers that would man your chatbot. And essentially, they do the same thing. They simply ask, hey, are you interested? What's your name? What's your phone number? And it never made sense to me why you wouldn't automate that because it's pretty route, you know, conversation and saves lawyers a heck of a lot of money. So that's one use case that's very powerful, shows immediate value using the bot to help you capture leads. And Tom, the the LawDroid Copilot and the custom LawDroid Builder, so are they utilizing uh, OpenAI or what? What are, where's the engine coming from? Yeah, so keep in mind, LawDroid's been around for seven years. We've had this platform for over three years, the no-code intuitive platform. And so we still have pre-generative AI systems that we have in place that you could still use to make a very custom solution. But yeah, on top of that, obviously from a year ago, we built onto it an additional layer. So we have many different layers of technology, the latest being generative AI. We use OpenAI's models, all of them you could choose from. And just recently we added on Llama 2, which is a um, you know open source AI model that users can select to use that as well. And you can train it. Can you train it up on your own documents? I mean, uh, let's say you you want to you want to create it to uh, create a certain type of motion, and you have a whole you know set of previous motions of that type that you've done. I mean, are you able to upload those and have it train off of those? Yeah, in fact, you've been able to do that with our system since January. It's very robust now. Like you can upload one document. You could upload several documents, PDFs, Word documents, and you could even just have an open text box that you fill in the information that you want it to know about. Um, we call them knowledge bases. And so you could create knowledge bases within our system. If you have many different documents, you could create a knowledge group, which is just a logical collection of knowledge bases. And you could ask questions that are drawn where the answers are drawn from that knowledge base. But you could also use it, like you said, as a training examples of like, you know, these are past motions that I've written. I like to write one in the style of that. What are you most excited about going into 2024? I mean, we're at the end of the year and the field is just changing so quickly. I mean, if you had a look in over the next year, both at bots and generative AI, I mean, what are the most exciting things to you? I think the most exciting thing to me is that I believe that by 2025, we're going to have AGI, which is artificial general artificial general intelligence. So that's the human level type uh, intelligence that people have been talking about, which is not really, that's not the end goal. We're going to go far past that. And there's going to be unimaginable things that we'll be able to achieve with this technology, including helping to fight cancer, helping people to stay healthy, lots of great uh, positive things. So that's the most exciting to me. Um, but, (laughs) But dialing that back to the reality of you know, working as a lawyer is that I think that a lot of the 
what we do, we'll be able to get help with. You know, people still want to hire people. They want to have a lawyer that they can meet with and ask questions of and feel comforted by. That's not going to change. When I deal with clients, even now, it is such an ingrained thing that they want to have a local lawyer, someone who's nearby that they can see, go to the office. That's a very important thing still. And it probably will be for the remaining generation until we make a full transition over to more of an online experience. There is online convenience and people really appreciate that. But at bottom, they still want to have the peace of mind that a person inspires. What do you think about using AI for adjudications? I asked this to all of my guests who, who are into tech. Um, I mean, to me, uh, it's in some sense, it's really like, like everything else. It's a mixed bag. I mean, on the one hand, I can see where it can eliminate. I mean, of course, it depends on how you train it. But I think it can eliminate certain types of biases. I mean, if you have... Uh, you know, a technological system using evidence only uh, and comparing it to precedents, I think you can eliminate, you know, subjectivity. Again, it's all in how it's trained. On the other hand, um, I mean, it's a mixed bag. What What are your thoughts on adjudications? Uh, I, I understand that it's being, it's, it's being employed already to a certain degree in some European countries. Um, they mentioned or, for example, for initial asylum screenings, uh, you know, people are coming in with certain types of claims, and if they do not fit like one of the recognized patterns, you know, it's giving a recommendation to reject the initial claim, something like that. It's a great question. It's uh, one that I haven't had asked of me before, but I think I think the advantage to using uh, AI for adjudication, if you're going to use it for that, at least as initial as an initial screener is that I think you still have subjectivity because you still have training data that is coming from people and the people inherently have their own biases, different biases, by the way. But I think what's, what's the advantage to using an AI system is that it externalizes that, right? And then once it's externalized, you can, as you said, you could dial it back. You could, you could, essentially retrain the weights, right? The weights of like why it's deciding one way versus another. And once you have control of that, you can, you know, have a system that is more fair. I think though, at the same time, what I just talked about is an immense amount of power. <laughs> you know, like the fact that somebody can retrain the weights to make it less biased, but create a type of system that reflects that person's values and what they want. It's just a, a lot of power that is probably going to be exercised by someone or some people that aren't elected and uh, haven't been, you know, don't necessarily reflect the political will of the people. So there's like this interesting interplay between democracy and technology and fairness and equality that goes on there that I haven't quite completely wrapped my head around. I think, I mean, we're going to get into the topic of access to justice. One of the exciting things about legal technology in general is that by reducing the amount of actual lawyer labor involved in handling certain tasks, it does have tremendous potential for access to justice, for enabling work to get done for people who you know don't have the means to hire an attorney to do all of the work individually in the traditional way. 
Um, but we're gonna we're gonna get to access to justice because I know that you are involved uh, in the access to, as an access to justice uh, tech fellow. Uh, so let's um, just hold that for a minute. But before we get to that, um, I mean, a lot of practitioners do are nervous, and and people in society in general are nervous about you know the developments in AI. It's it's changing so quick, and everyone has some apprehension about the power of this technology and the ways in which it's going to change how we work and how we live. Um, what are some of the misconceptions or sources of hesitation or even stumbling blocks in implementation that you've seen lawyers face when trying to incorporate AI into their practices You know, up till now? I think one major misconception uh, with generative AI, which is you know, what we're, we've all been experiencing over the last year is that it's an oracle, a fact expert, that you can rely upon it for fact-based inquiries. And it's not what it's built for. It could definitely be corrected to include further information to make it better at that. But this has been oversaid, but it's a large language model that's been trained against, you know, the entire internet uh, to understand language better. So it does get some facts right a lot of times but it shouldn't be relied upon for that. And of course, that misunderstanding has been at the root of the Schwartz case, which had the hallucinations with citations get being ill-founded. If I could drive home one thing that is a misconception that I want all the lawyers listening to this to get out of their head is to be able to understand the difference between ChatGPT, which is the consumer-facing AI, okay, on the one hand that we've all experienced, hopefully, and if not, try it out. And on the other hand, apps that are built on top of that technology, okay, like LawDroid, like CaseText, like Spellbook, like a whole bunch, a whole list of others. When you build on top of that technology, you could build in safeguards. You could build in additional layers that make it more useful, make it more accurate, make it more reliable. Understood. How about in implementation? I mean, pract practically speaking, I mean, what do you hear, for example, from LawDroid customers about, uh, well, you know, I tried it, but, you know, I'm having problems getting the most out of it. I mean, when it comes to implementation, what do you say? Yeah, that is a recurring issue that, I've, that I'm working through. I think the most important thing there for me is being open to the feedback and trying to work through it to make it a better product. But yeah, there's definitely right now, especially with, with my product, the back and forth listening about how to make it more useful and better in terms of being able to sit down during your workday and use it and make it part of your workflow. That, that is a challenge that really depends it's on, on the specific lawyer's use case. And um, all I can say about that is that I'm very open to the feedback from my customers to make LawDroid so do you say it, I mean, do, do, your, do your customers really come from all practice areas now or are they concentrated in, in, in a few or, I mean, give us, like, give us a sense of the universe of use cases here that you've seen, I mean, in terms of, and things that might surprise, surprise us that people are using it for, if you can think of it. You know, we've worked with many different types of lawyers, law firms. We have a, a legal insurance company that is an enterprise client of LawDroid's, and we help them to manage their relationship with their network of attorneys. They have 15,000 attorneys that are part of their network, and we help them to manage that relationship and you know, answering frequently asked questions and then a bunch of other things that I can't go into a lot of detail about. But working with a legal insurance company is probably something 
that you never thought Lodgewood was was doing. Also, we worked with over a dozen, maybe 20 at this point, legal aid organizations where we helped them to scale up their services to the people that qualify for legal aid, you know? So like one example of that is if you're applying for workers' compensation in Tennessee, you could use our system to interview you and complete the claim form that you need to, to file with the state of Tennessee. It also like speaks to you if you, if you, uh, you know, if that helps people in terms of accessibility to use that system. And then of course there's the lawyers and law firms that we work with. We've also worked with a lot of, uh, uh, law schools over the past year because we have this, uh, briefing function built into it where it could ex- grab a case, brief it, you know, the issue, the, uh, holding the reasoning and put all of that together for law students. So they're very excited about that. There's a lot of different, as you see, a lot of different stakeholders that have different use cases and interests. And it's really helped us to build a more robust uh, product. And it's one that I'm really proud of, but I know that there's still a lot of work to make it a lot better. Well, and Thomas, um, you know, you co-founded the uh, organization American Legal Technology uh, and its awards program. And I, you're frequently promoting uh, the ALT awards. So tell us about ALT. How did uh, you know that come to be? What are the goals of the organization? What motivated you to get involved in this initiative? And what impact do you hope it will have on the legal tech community? And how did the and was it the first award show that you had recently? Um, and if so, how did it how did it go? Yeah, when I when I hear questions like that, it reminds me like I've I've been juggling a lot. <laughs> I've been doing a lot of a lot of things. So the American Legal Technology Awards, it started four years ago. Um, I have two co-founders, Patrick Pallas. He's a lawyer that does workers' comp in Tacoma, and uh, Kat Moon, who's a professor at Vanderbilt Law School. Sometimes people don't believe me, but it really started out as just an excuse to have a party where people can have a good time and, uh, you know, dress up, have fun, and, and honor, you know, the the innovation that people are up to. That's really what, how it started. Um, and then COVID happened. So we had to do the first two years just online. And then the last two years have been in person. Just this past year in October, we had it in Nashville, Tennessee, and it was just, you know, sold out 150 people. It was fantastic. It was really wonderful. And we got to honor some people that have been working uh, very hard to make everybody's lives better. Our uh, Lifetime Achievement Award went to Carolyn Elephant, who is just a, an amazing person. And she's also been working for the past 30 years to um, help other lawyers start their own law firms. So it's things like that that make it really worthwhile. Yeah, I interviewed Carolyn, and she is is really, really an inspiring person. Um, she's just been been at this business of trying to... I mean, she's really one of the people who's been at this longest in terms of helping lawyers to optimize their practices. We were talking about, you know, decades ago when the only, one of the only resources out there was Jay Thunberg's book. Um, but, you know, and then she had her, her blog and her book. Um, but yeah. So, um, and you were named as an American Bar Association journal, legal rebel, legal rebel. It's interesting designation. So that's a significant uh, recognition and what is what does it mean to you to be a legal rebel, and do you consider yourself a legal rebel? I do because I think I've 
felt and been a bit of an outsider when it comes to like the legal establishment of doing it a certain way where you go extremely deep in one practice area and you just become a total expert and that you work at one firm for a very long time. Like I mentioned, I, I've moved around quite a bit. I found that experience enriching, but I, I understand at the same time that it's not the typical or expected traditional experience that lawyers have. So in that sense, I guess, <laughs> I guess I'm a bit of a rebel, but, um, no, to me, what that really meant is, um, that people are, you know, th that I feel seen that, that the work that I've done has been uh, recognized and that I, it feels like it's been appreciated. And you're shaking things up for the better. And I, and, and I ask a lot of people this question as well. I mean, did you, did, don't you get the sense that the field as a whole, legal industry as a whole is becoming more, a lot more flexible than it used to be. And in part because of technology, people working remotely, COVID. I mean, it used to be the case that you kind of, you know, you, the goal was you go into a firm and you're going to stay there. And it's like, it was a very sort of lockstep, you know, way of, of going through a career. I mean, people sometimes left and then went to a corporation and worked in-house and that kind of thing. But there wasn't a whole lot of, there wasn't a ton of flexibility. But I really do feel like the field as a whole is is becoming a lot more flexible. Do you feel that way as well? Oh, definitely. There's so many more choices over the past seven, eight years than there were previously. It totally was that system you described, this locked, lockstep system. But now, you know, a friend of mine, Joshua Lennon, who's the attorney in residence at Clio, I remember, you know, seven years ago when we were doing Legal Hackers together that he spoke at University of British Columbia Law School and he was talking to them about what he was doing and how it was like an alternative, legal alternative, you know, career path. And that was kind of, whoa, what is this? You know, this is real different. But there's so much of that now. Like it's, 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 it's great that lawyers have many more opportunities that can enrich them because lawyers aren't all the same. Some of us are very creative. And when we don't have that creative outlet, it's not as fulfilling. So the fact that attorneys like Alex Sue can be out there and uh, making us laugh and doing TikToks and, you know, a great, you know, commentary and criticism of the industry at the same time that's in a positive way, I think that's all for the better. You know, with the Fifth Circuit, I mean, there's as AI becomes more utilized in legal practice, uh, some of the uh, authorities, whether they're the courts or the bar authorities and so forth, um, are thinking about, you know, ethical guidelines and things like that. Um, I know that the Fifth Circuit has a proposed uh, regulation uh, that they're seeking comment on where they would require lawyers to certify every document that they're filing as to whether it had been uh, prepared with the use of AI and whether, you know, it had been reviewed for precision and that sort of thing. I mean, what is your opinion on that type of regulation? To me, frankly, seems kind of heavy handed, not really the direction we should be going in. I'm interested in what you think about it. I mean, um, the, the technology is changing. It's going to keep changing so quickly. I mean, to an approach like that where, um, you know, you're forcing people to to sign off on, on every document that way. It just doesn't seem, uh, I mean, is it, first of all, is, 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 isn't what they're really asking you to, to attest to, isn't that really already covered by existing ethical rules? Um, I mean, at least if they're read, if they're read broadly enough. Um, and do we really need that? And are we going to have, a, you know, do we have a rule like that every single time 
uh, a technological advance comes out. I mean, what do you, what do you think about that? I think in federal court, Rule 11 is sufficient. You know, mm-hmm. like we don't need these additional add-on AI, you know, affirmations. Like I understand it though. It makes sense to me that as a bit of a correction against what's happened with, you know, the Avianca case and, and another one uh, that people would want to do this. The judges would want to do this because if they don't do this, then, you know, there's a concern that they're not watching closely enough. So I, I get the motivation for it, but I think in the long run, all of those will fall away and it'll just be what it has always been, you know, rule 11, where you just stand behind your work product and you're responsible for it. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, it's a re- it seems like a reactive measure, you know, one which doesn't, um, I, I mean, is, is not one that in the long run is going to be the best way to approach the pace of technological innovation that we're saying, right? I mean, we need some broad guidelines and flexibility to operate within those broad guidelines rather than, you know, these very, very narrow um you know, certifications. Let's talk about your role as a mentor at the Yale Sci Center for Innovative Thinking. What's the center about? I, I, it's the first I've heard of it. Sounds fascinating. Um, and you also have a role at the Access to Justice Tech Fellows, which I understand that's, is that out of University of Pennsylvania? Yes. Yeah. So tell us about your activities at, at, at these two, uh, you know, engagements. Well, both of them have essentially been, uh, mentor type positions where I get to work with, um, usually, you know, younger, um, law students on the, on the side of the A to J tech fellows and, um, with the Psy center for excellence, that's been a lot of uh, college students that are entrepreneurial. And to me, it's always been important because I had the benefit of people helping me when I was younger and them paying it forward to me that I in turn do that. And it's not in the sense of an obligation. It's more in the sense of, it's really enriching, you know, that when you get to talk to people that are encountering these, uh, life situations and professional situations that, that you encountered when you were younger, uh, and helping them through it, you know, hopefully they get to avoid some of the pitfalls that we experienced when we were going through it the first time as a result of the advice that, that they're given. And if not, we're only human. Um, but to have somebody who could listen to that and to be helpful and if anything, support it. So the Yale Center is sort of uh, broadly for entrepreneurs and innovators at the university. The the Access to Justice Tech Fellows, is that in, in association with Penn's Law School or... Yeah, Miguel Willis is the leader of that program. He sometimes has, uh, you know, classes where, let's say, he'll focus on legal technology and AI in particular. And I'll have a session where I get to speak to the whole group of fellows about about that and what it means and how to take advantage of that opportunity. But also, like, to be able to speak occasionally to fellows one on one, where you know they have questions about something, and I can give them some advice about how to deal with it. Um, so yeah, they both have essentially been, uh, mentor mentee opportunities and yeah, they've been very fulfilling. And, and I mean, what would be some of your key advice that you, you know, find yourself giving over and over to aspiring legal tech entrepreneurs these days? Stick to it. You know, don't get down from the, uh, ups and downs that you'll experience, which we all do. 
it's not a rocket ship. It's not what you hear about in the movies or in the news all the time, where it's just a up and to the left kind of chart that is just, you know, rocket growth. If you get that, fantastic. Good for you. Uh, but a lot of us struggle through, you know, the month to month and keeping customers happy, learning from the feedback that they give you, which can be challenging at times because you think, man, I'm not doing this right. Um, and using it as, op as an opportunity to improve things. I think the number one thing is just having that mental strength, the fortitude to just keep going and get through it. And with the access to justice tech fellows, I mean, what, what really in practical terms are they trying to do? Um, can you drill down a little bit on the details? Well, I, I think all of those law students have an interest, a genuine interest in helping people. And the HJ Tech Fellows helps, it allows them to, to explore that in a way that combines their, their passion for helping people with technology, seeing how they can marry those two together, their, you know, legal background with technology in an effort to expand uh, people's access to legal services and justice. And uh, Thomas, you know, you, you speak at a lot of conferences. Um, which speaking engagements have left uh, the most lasting impact on you and why? The first one was in 2016, I think it was, got invited by Clio to speak at the Clio Cloud Conference. And I was talking about chatbots, how to make them, you know, all things chatbots, because it was just really popping at the time. And um, there were such gracious hosts and... Um, you know, getting to speak in front of so many people, it was a lot of fun. Uh, the second one I remember is when I think it was 2017 with the British Legal Technology Awards. Uh, LawDroid was nominated for an award and uh, I got to speak on a panel and the moderator was, was Richard Susskind. <laughs> and uh, that was an amazing experience. They were also very gracious hosts and getting to see London and then the legal tech community that I love meeting, you know, Pro Professor Susskind, that was, it was a fantastic, memorable time. Let's talk a little bit more about the key challenges that legal tech entrepreneurs face. Uh, so in your view, what are they and how can they, they overcome these key challenges? Sure. I think a key challenge for any legal tech entrepreneur is, is money because they're going out on this venture. It's new. It's different, but they also need support financially to be able to pursue this thing. And, um, you know, if they don't, if they're not independently wealthy, they probably need to ask for some, some money. I think though, that what's interesting right now at this moment in time is that if they're incorporating AI in any way into what their solution is, that things are tilting towards bootstrapping, you know, like it's traditionally been you have this idea or you have some initial traction, you go out to VC and you raise, you know, X million dollars to uh, pursue it. And either you can get the money or you don't. And if you don't, then you don't pursue it. But I think the economics of everything, especially with AI being so affordable, um, easy to implement with the right developers, that you could get your company off the ground and make it profitable by just bootstrapping it with not a ton of money. So I think those economics have changed and it's a big, it is a big sea change for legal tech in general. 
and one that I think bodes well for entrepreneurs. Thomas, you also uh, run a podcast, which is Law Droid Manifesto. Um, you know, what sorts of topics do you cover on your podcast and what are you trying to provide your audience in terms of value with the content? Yeah, and I have to confess that I wish I was more uh, regular in terms of my publications to Law Droid Manifesto, both in terms of the articles and the podcast. But um, I do it when it inspires me. And my take on things is a, at a much more general level. Um, I know there's been so much going on, and I, I really didn't want to do the day-by-day, -day, like, this is what's happening today, this is the new specific thing, and take more of, yeah, and take more of a, a philosophical viewpoint, because my undergrad degrees in philosophy, um, I, I like to look at things like that about the movements and like generalizations of what's going on. And I think, you know, people find that valuable too, especially when they're being uh, hit with a lot of the day-to-day -day developments. And um, you're also co-founder of Vancouver Legal Hackers. Uh, are you still involved in it? And how important is, has that collaboration been? And uh, how important do you think community building is in the legal tech sector? Community building is, is where it's at, you know, um, just in general, just in life, like we call it community building, but it's just, it's, it's getting to know people, getting to, to understand how we all, you know, link together and, and what other people need and how you can connect them with people that can help them. Even, even if it's not a direct thing, you know, life isn't, and shouldn't be transactional. It should be more about how we can all enrich our lives from, from knowing each other. And to get back to your specific, see, I'm getting philosophical here. To get back to what you you were asking me about at Vancouver Legal Hackers, I'm still involved in that. I'm in the in the, in the um, in the moment right now of transitioning that to some new leadership because I'm pursuing American Legal Technology Awards, Lodroid's own first conference coming up. I've got a lot going on, so it's been fantastic. Um, when I first moved to Vancouver, I established that with some other co-founders. And it was a fantastic way to get to know people in a new city. And we all share the same common interests of being, you know, being in love with the law and technology. So I would highly recommend, you know, meetups and uh, organizations like that for people to get to know each other. And you were a Fast Case 50 honoree, uh, which is uh, quite an honor. So how do you see recognition impacting the work you do and the causes you champion? For anyone who's working hard, you, you always wonder, you know, do people notice? Like, do people see, you know, what you're, how hard you're working and that you're really giving it, giving it out to the universe and hoping that things come back. And, and, and those recognitions are, are fantastic because you do feel seen, you do feel valued. And the Fast Case 50, that was one that came early and I was just so excited by it and it really helped to open some doors to in people that, you know, I, I, I could talk to about what I was working on because it's one thing to, you know, do the work and have your own accomplishments and the things that you've created with your own hands, but to be recognized for it, you get to talk to people and be taken more seriously, you know, for better or for worse. And, um, yeah, it's been, it's been a, a great honor to be, 
uh, honored by Fast Case 50, the ABA Legal Rebels, and uh, the British Legal Technology Awards, amongst some others. You know, it was just, I, I'm always very thankful for their, uh, for their acknowledgement. With all of the technology and automation that firms today uh, can leverage, have you? What do you think are the most crucial skills that you know legal professionals, especially people you know just coming into the field, uh, or even those who feel like they are still catching up? I mean, what do you think are some of the skills that people should strive to acquire so that they can future-proof their their legal practice and? and really thrive in a tech-driven legal landscape? What I think is the number one skill is probably not what anyone is expecting me to say. Um, I think it's curiosity. You know, I think it's having an open mind. I think that's the key, especially right now, especially with things, this crazy, you know, um, rocket ship that we're on right now where we're not quite sure where it's going. Um, I think having an open mind and being curious about these new things is the way that we stay stay relevant. I think that if you just focus on what you're doing, your niche practice, and just do that, you're you're going to miss the forest. And before you know it, you might be left behind. So you don't want to do that. You want to keep on top of what's going on. I know there's so much to keep up with. Does you don't have to keep track of everything, but um but to explore, play around with ChatGPT, other software. You don't have to pay tons of money. A lot of this stuff you can try for free. And uh, just keep on top of things. And how do you balance uh, you know, being a founder of LawDroid and, and continuing to run and develop the company with you know, all of these other uh, projects that you're involved in? Uh, what's your personal philosophy? Let's get back to the philosophy. What's your personal philosophy of, 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 of balance? In, in all of your different projects? I guess, you know, like maybe a, a lawyerly move is to take issue with the assumptions underlying the question. <laughs> um, that that there is a balance. I mean, the thing is, is that it, it is a reflection of who we are. I love my family. I spend time with my family. I love technology. I've created a lot, you know, a legal tech company, LawDroid, to pursue that. I, I love the profession that we're all a part of. And combining them all and racing to keep up with all of these different interesting projects is just something that makes life fulfilling and worthwhile. So how do I do it? I have no idea. It is a bit crazy at times, but um, I wouldn't have it any other way. I think if I was just doing one thing um, over and over and over again, that it w that would not be a good fit for me. Um, and I'm not I'm not suggesting that everyone do this. It's quite a lot of juggling that 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 I do, but it keeps life interesting for me. And you're you're currently based in Vancouver. Yeah, I'm originally from Los Angeles, California, but I live in Vancouver there for ten years. What's next for LawDroid, uh, and what's next for Thomas Martin in terms of project or projects or initiatives you're most excited about in the coming months and the new year? Well, James, I think what's next for me is to continue to fight the good fight of building this product as I know you're familiar with, with, with yours and to, uh, continue to try to do my best to please customers and build that user base, which over time is just an amazing, you know, asset, both in terms of having, getting to work with a lot of great people 
but also like the financial independence that comes from that to further, you know, grow that is what's next. In terms of the technology and how that's going to play out within Lodroid, I can't really, you know, predict based on what we've seen where that's going to go. But I can say that what my plan is, is to just make Lodroid a trusty assistant that it, that can help lawyers with the work that they do, but also uh, to help people and do social good. So that's that's really what I what I have in mind. And the more that we get to get together with the awards, with the conferences that that I'm organizing, the more we get to to see each other and feel good about that, exchange ideas, and grow together. I agree with you. The community building, the sharing, the exchange of ideas, it's 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 so incredibly important, um, both, you know, for us to experience, you know, the richness of of, of life and of being in, in this field and also to keep driving forward uh the innovation. So Thomas, I'm I'm right there with you on on that. And congratulations on from what I understand is a fantastic job um with the legal awards. I mean I was I couldn't get to Nashville for it, but um, definitely do want to make the next one. But Tom's, we're, we're we're getting up to the end of the hour, and I want to thank you again for appearing on the podcast because it's been a fascinating conversation, very very impressive story. Thomas G. Martin, founder of Lawjoid, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, James. I, I truly appreciate it, getting the time to speak with you and with your audience. Thank you.